0: Whoa!
1: In the Byzantine liturgical calendar. Once again, we have a very rich week. We always do, but this in particular is very rich because today is the Sunday of the Prodigal Son. We also have during this week the Feast of the Three Holy Hierarchs. And then we've got the smash ending of this week. We're on Friday, February 2nd, we celebrate the encounter of our Lord with Simeon in the temple. In the Latin Rite Church, they call that the presentation of our Lord in the temple. And that story comes from the second chapter of Luke. And it represents now what is the final phase, the final event of what started out, well, technically March 25th, but in particular, December 25th, the whole cycle of God revealing himself, the great mystery, the invisible made visible, Christ's conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, his birth, circumcision, and now his presentation or encounter in the temple. We also had there as well on January 6th, his baptism, there he's a full grown man, but that was all part of this unfolding, this manifestation, this epiphanic event, the showing forth of God, especially God in the flesh. So this really starts to conclude what is actually the, if you want to call it, the Christmas season. But there's a connecting link between this season and the one coming up, which is the Lenten season in which we enter into that cycle of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And these connecting links in the Eastern churches have different themes. There are Sundays. There's about four of them. And this is one of them, the Sunday of the Prodigal Son. So these themes are connecting links between the two cycles, but they're also part of a rising action as we rise up towards that very intense period of Lent and Pascha. And each theme of each Sunday during this connecting link... Is one that draws us into themes like desire, desire for God, as we saw in the first Sunday, the first one of these connecting links. That was the Sunday of Zacchaeus, and then there was the publican and the Pharisee, and now we come to the prodigal son, one of the great, great stories of the Bible. All these have to do with repentance, humility, conversion, desire for Christ. See, now that he's here, now that he he is among us, we have declared that he is clearly among us. He has made himself real to us. Now it's time for response. And what is the only response, the only accurate, honest, authentic response to being in the very presence of God? Well, it is very much like what we read about in Luke chapter 2. When the elder Simeon encounters Christ, Christ is in his midst, is in his very hands. The Virgin Mary and Joseph together present the Christ child to Simeon the elder in the temple. And Simeon, of course, exclaims with that famous, famous prayer, which is used in the Vesper service in the Eastern churches. It's called the prayer of the Canticle of Simeon. Now you may dismiss your servant, O Lord, because my eyes have seen. You may dismiss your servant, O Lord, in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. A little bit of background on this feast. When Jesus was presented to the temple, he once again was deferring to his own laws, laws which were actually meant for others, just as he did in his baptism and also in his circumcision. He defers to his own laws. The laws, of course, were made for human beings, for sinners. Christ takes on our humanness and submits himself to his own laws, although he did not need to. But it's a sign of his great love, his great humility, his being with us, his pitching his tent among us, as the Gospel of John says in its prologue. And this feast was something that was required by Mosaic law, it's in chapter 12, when a woman who gives birth to a boy is unable for 40 days to touch anything sacred or to enter the temple area by reason of her legal impurity. And at the end of that period, she is required to offer a year-old lamb as an offering and a turtle dove or young pigeon if she can't afford the lamb. The woman who could not afford a lamb, of course, in this case, is the Virgin Mary. And she comes in together with Joseph, Christ's foster father, and they took him to the temple to present him as the firstborn son. He was consecrated to the Lord as the law required, and that's in Exodus 13. But even though there was no requirement that this be done at the temple, they did do it, and the concept of a presentation at the temple is probably derived from 1 Samuel. So already we have three Old Testament references to customs in the Old Testament, which, once again, we always see in Christ. We always see the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Christ. And in this fulfillment, we see Christ being presented in a similar way as Samuel was. That's in again once it's in 1 Samuel. We see him being ascribed to the law, which is to offer the firstborn son. We see the purification of the Virgin Mary after 40 days of giving birth. And a little note on that purification. This sometimes gets a bad rap in our day and age. It's as though it's sometimes a put down on womanhood or in the processes of the woman's body and relative to childbirth and so on. But actually. The reason why women were not allowed to enter the temple after giving birth, they were considered to be, quote-unquote, impure, was not because there was something wrong with them. It was actually, in one sense, you can almost flip it around. It's almost a compliment. The Jewish people believed that blood carried within it life, and so any kind of loss of blood was a loss of life. It was almost like as though you had, in a sense, died. And you also did something which was a very, very supernatural nature. In other words, you you gave birth, and in doing so, there was a loss of blood. So, in a sense, the mother had entered into another realm, a realm that was other than this world, and she had to re-enter into that world to gain that life back and also to be able to basically re-enter the banal, because she had touched something very special by giving birth. There was a recognition of the miracle of human birth. And that's the real reason why the women were considered to be ritually impure after giving birth. It was not a put-down on womanhood. Now, Simeon is an older priest in the temple, and as he takes Christ in his hands, we have to understand something here. Here, he is taking in his hands God, God himself, because Jesus is, of course, God in the flesh, He is both entirely God and entirely man. He is human in all ways, except, of course, sin. Actually, sin is really not part of being human. It was added on to the human condition, but it wasn't really part of being human. And in the liturgical text for this day, there is a lot of very interesting, as always, metaphors and paradoxes and reflections. In one of those prayers that we say during the Vesper service for February 2nd, it says this, Search the scriptures as Christ our God said in the Gospels, for in them we find him who was born and wrapped in swaddling clothes, the one laid in a manger and fed upon milk, who received circumcision and was carried by Simeon, not in fancy nor in imagination, but in very truth, has he appeared to the world. Let us cry out to him, glory to you, O pre-eternal God." Now, you see there, it's kind of a rundown, as I did at the beginning of the program today. Basically, it's a rundown of the unfolding of this incarnational reality, this revelation of the great mystery where the invisible God becomes visible. In this prayer, the Vesper service, essentially we itemize all those ways in which Christ did reveal himself. Swaddling clothes in the manger, fed upon milk, received circumcision, was carried by Simeon. you notice all these things are very, very, well deferential or in a sense humiliating. There there are things that God submitted himself to in human flesh. He didn't have to, but he did it. And as he's doing it, at the same time, he is still God. So the liturgical texts also say this, he who is ancient of days and young in the flesh is being brought to the temple by his virgin mother. He fulfills the promise of his own law. Simeon receives him and says, "'Now you may dismiss your servant "'according to word and peace, "'for my eyes have seen your salvation, O Lord.'" I'm also gonna refer here to two liturgical texts that make an interesting play on the words. It kinda reverse things. In the one liturgical text, it says this, "'While remaining young in spirit, "'you became old in body, O Simeon. "'You received the promise not to see death "'until you had seen the young infant.'" He was of god the father before all ages he humbled himself through the flesh you beheld him and danced for joy and asked for release from the flesh then you joyfully passed to the heavenly abode okay now the beginning of that text while remaining young in spirit you became old in body o simeon then later on it says this it flips it around in relation to jesus he who is ancient of days and young in the flesh is being brought to the temple by his virgin mother he fulfills the promise of his own law Simon receives him and says, Now you may dismiss your servant according to word and peace, For my eyes have seen your salvation, O Lord. We're going to talk more about this marvelous feast day and other things on our program today. I'm Father Thomas
0: Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion and to tell the story of the eastern lung of the Catholic Church. We need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com That's ByzantineCatholic.com and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Stop. Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you... You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. It's no secret that... Father Loya and other speakers from the Tabor Life Institute are available to speak at your parish or group on marriage and family topics seen through the lens of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Other topics include Eastern Christian Spirituality,
1: Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. The feast of the encounter of our Lord with Simeon in the temple, that's what it's called in the Eastern churches. In the Western churches, it's known as the presentation of our Lord in the temple. It is a feast in which the liturgical texts also bring out another very interesting point. It says in the Vesper services for February 3rd, and by the way, there is a post-festive for this feast, as there is for a major feast, meaning we carry on the celebration of the feast for several days. It says here in this Vesper verse, he who once gave the law to Moses on Sinai today submits himself to the prescriptions of the law. In his compassion he has become like us for our sakes. Now the pure God as a holy infant, having opened a pure womb, is being offered as God to himself. He is freeing us from the curse of the law and granting light to our souls. That little phrase there, he is being offered as God to himself, is interesting. Think about it. Jesus is God. He's being offered in the temple to God. So it's God offering himself to himself. (laughs) This may seem a little strange to us. However, that same reality is repeated in the divine liturgy, in the Eucharistic liturgy, in the prayers of the priests in the Byzantine church, in which we say that Christ is the one who offers and is offered. In other words, in a sense, Christ is offering himself, while we offer him just as Mary and Joseph, his parents, offered Christ as a child in the temple. At the same time, it is God who is offering, and God who is offering himself. So, in the liturgy and also in this event of Christ's encounter with Simeon in the temple, we have God essentially offering himself to himself. But he's doing that on behalf of us. He offers himself, but not just alone. He has us, in a sense, summed up in himself. So, as God offers himself, he is offering himself on behalf of us and with us. So, we're doing the offering along with God, but it is actually God offering himself, the one who is offered and is, the one who offers and is offered. It's an interesting mystery. I know it may be a little bit of a brain buster, but such is our faith. It's a great mystery. Now, in addition to the encounter of our Lord with Simeon in the temple, we also have the theme of the prodigal son today. And also during this week, we have the feast of the three holy hierarchs in the Byzantine church are St. John Chrysostom, St. Basil the Great, and St. Gregory the theologian. The reason why these three come together on one day is because they all had their own feast days earlier in the month of January. However, a long time ago, and I like to call it the real good old days of the church, there were actually disputes, bar fights over which of the three was the greatest. They all had their own, in a sense, pious cultic following. (laughs) Some argued that John Chrysostom was greater. Some know Gregory the theologian. No, some say Basil the Great was the best. And they would actually fight about this. So eventually what happened was the church gave them their individual feasts, they kept those feasts, but they also then put them all together in one feast on January 30th. So Chrysostom, Basil, and Gregory the Theologian were all fourth century saints, great doctors and fathers of the Eastern Church. Gregory was a great mind, a Greek theologian, and John Chrysostom and Basil were also great theologians, but they were known also for their respective liturgies, meaning the anaphora, or what the West would understand as the Eucharistic prayer. That's sort of the heart, the meat, the soul of the Eucharistic liturgy is the Eucharistic prayer in the Eastern churches. We call it anaphora, which is a Greek word which means an offering. And the original one was from Saint Basil, which is a more lengthy one. is a very, very elaborate one, very flowery, very rich in words and meaning, lots of references to the Old Testament and to God's magnificence. Well, it's similar in John Chrysostom's liturgy, but John Chrysostom actually shortened Basil's anaphora a bit. And the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom is the one that's most commonly used in the Byzantine churches. The liturgy of St. Basil is used largely on the most festive occasions, on the highest of holy days. But it used to be a much more common liturgy centuries ago. So we have the two great liturgists, which are also two great theologians. And Basil the Great, by the way, in a sense, is the father of monasticism having to do with community. In other words, it was called Cenobitic, a Cenobite. In other words, they lived in community. There's the eremitic monks, which were the original ones, such as St. Anthony of the desert from Egypt. They lived basically as hermits. They would come together at times. But with St. Basil, and again, this is the 4th century, we had the development of monasticism where monks lived in community. And from there, monasticism was then brought as a communal life to the Western churches, largely by people like St. Benedict. But St. Basil the Great actually came up with a, I guess you would call it, you could call it a rule of life for monks because they lived in communities, so they had to have some kind of rule, some way to get along and to live in an orderly way. It wasn't quite that way when you're a hermit, although you did have the prayer the church you had to adhere to. You didn't have to worry so much about having an order to live with other people. <laughs> now when the monks come together under St. Basil, we have to have some order. And that rule is what St. Benedict used to base his rule, which is very well known in the Western church, the rule of St. Benedict, his became the standard for monasticism in the West. Now, in the West, monasticism developed into other areas, other forms, and went on to be like what we know today as religious orders, uh, friars, uh, third orders, and so on, many different dimensions. In the East, monasticism just remained monasticism. They basically followed St. Basil's order, although they didn't really call it that per se. They just, it was just something he devised, and they followed it. Now, in some monasteries, there was a following of a certain abbot. And we have many famous ones, such as St. Macarius and St. Pacomius and St. Anthony— But they didn't really develop into religious orders like they did in the West. They basically just remained monasticism, and they followed a certain abbot. And their spiritualities weren't necessarily different or as compartmentalized as in the West. For example, you have Dominican spirituality, you have Benedictine spirituality, and Cistercian spirituality. You have different spiritualities in the West with religious orders and monastics, which is fine. You know, our faith is... Many-faceted diamond. In the East, there wasn't that compartmentalization, although, as I mentioned, to some extent there was only in that certain monks would align themselves with certain abbots who were well known for their holiness and their spirituality. And of course, those abbots would have their own particular emphasis on things, their own particular charism or gift, and that's why certain monks would follow them. So there weren't religious orders in the East as such, but there was a following of different abbots with different charisms. So again, as always, East and West, and that's one of the big statements, the big points of this program. We like to talk about unity. As we present the riches of the Eastern churches, we do so in light of the fact that East and West ultimately converge. They ultimately arrive at the same point, even though they get there in different ways with different complementary emphasis of spirituality. As I mentioned before, the many facets of a diamond, there are different ways to look at a diamond, but all the facets are equally valid and beautiful, but they're all part of that one same diamond. That's one of the best ways to understand the differences between the Eastern and Western churches. For the Eastern and Western churches, they're basically differences of emphasis, of viewpoint, not of fundamental belief. Speaking of viewpoint, Let's get back for a moment to the encounter of our Lord in the temple with Simeon. What's also very significant about this feast is that it shows us something that I like to emphasize very much in all of my presentations, whether on radio or public speaking or from the pulpit or writing or whatever, and that our faith really is about a vision, a way of seeing, and we see that with Simeon. When he sees God in the flesh in his own hands and he remarks, Now my eyes have seen. My eyes have seen. Now, God, you can dismiss me. I can go to heaven. There's nothing else to be seen now. He sees God. And that's the whole point of this incarnational time of the liturgical calendar. All the feast days and Christmas and the circumcision, the theophany, and now the encounter of our Lord in the temple with Simeon. This is all dedicated to our being able to see God, to have that awareness of God, and therefore to be able to respond out of that vision. That's the whole key to our faith, more so than rules and teachings and so on. It's about being able to see as Simeon did. And once he saw, he was transformed. His life was complete. There was nothing else on this earth for him to live. And so he begged God to take him. And Simeon, as always, a person in the scripture is us. That's why we celebrate this feast. That's why it's in the scripture. We have to be Simeon. We have to be able to behold God in our lives, in our very hands, in everything that we do, and to be able to exclaim as Simeon, to really, really see Christ, to see the invisible God made visible in every aspect and every person, every event of our life, and to know, therefore, what life is really about. So that, yes, we can exclaim as Simeon, lord take me now because i have seen you i have seen everything that this life can offer and now i am ready for the ultimate vision of your glory in heaven i want to thank you for listening i'm father thomas loya on light of the east
0: to hear light of the east again visit byzantinecatholic.com and click on the features and programs tab and on itunes WTN Radio for the reason that Mother Angelica founded this entire enterprise. She always saw this as a spiritual growth network. It was to be an enterprise in media that reached people in all aspects of their life. She saw this as a a holistic approach to reaching the whole person in the middle of the world and bringing them truth and life. Raymond Arroyo thinks Catholic Radio is important.
1: So should you. Thank you for listening.